You're listening to What We're Learning About Learning, a podcast about higher ed teaching and learning created and produced by the Center for New Designs in Learning and Scholarship, also known as CANDLES, at Georgetown University. I'm Kim Heisman-Lebreski. And I'm Joe King. We're going to begin this episode a little bit differently than we normally do. We're going to begin by asking you to take a minute to reflect. Call to mind an occasion when you felt out of your depth or unsure what to do in an encounter or engagement with religious or spiritual diversity inside or outside the classroom. What did you do in that situation? What did you wish you had done in that situation? And perhaps, what did you wish you knew at the time that would have helped you decide what to do? Take a moment to think about those questions. Feel free to pause the podcast in order to give yourself some room to reflect. We'll be here when you come back, whether you like it or not. We asked these same questions in a workshop this past semester, one in which clergy from Georgetown University's campus ministry talked about the challenges and opportunities in teaching in a context that is religiously and spiritually diverse. According to the campus ministry website, at the heart of Georgetown is a long-standing Jesuit tradition of people for others, which steers us towards spiritual inquiry, civic engagement, and religious and cultural pluralism. While we have a commitment to religious and spiritual inclusivity, Students from religious minorities still report having negative experiences that range from exclusion to microaggressions to overt discrimination. Given that Georgetown is a Catholic university, we wanted to talk to clergy from traditions that are sometimes marginalized in a predominantly Christian environment. How do we act as allies? How can we do a good job, make an environment where all of our students from their many religious and spiritual traditions, including no affiliation, can thrive and where they feel comfortable? And they can learn, maybe feeling intellectually uncomfortable as they learn new concepts, but also feeling at home in the space. This isn't easy, as Rabbi Rachel Gartner, former director for Jewish life at Georgetown University, points out. I want to fess up. You know, I feel out of my depth sometimes in, in, in this kind of situation, right? This is hard. It's messy. It's confusing. We don't know everything about every background that gets challenged, when we're put in a situation um, that affects our background or that, right, that hits us directly. When someone said to me, oh yeah, Catholic is just um, Jewish plus, you know, and I thought, well, that means Jewish is minus. Or when uh, somebody said to me, oh, you're Jewish, I hate Muslims too. That happened once. Um, in both cases, <laughs> I didn't know what to do. And I also, you know, in, 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 in uh, got sort of fatutzed and, um, I know I wanted to interrupt and say something, uh, the second time, the Muslim time I had enough courage to, to say something, but the Catholic plus I, I, I was too stymied our polarized, uh, you know, argumentative world. I think there is so little space for learning and for acknowledging that we're all learning. And I just want to start with thanking you for learning and hoping that you will learn something here, but that also you'll give yourself a break. You'll get better and better at this, just along, along with the rest of us. As we've learned at Georgetown, issues can even come up in an environment that's got a history of caring about religion. Here's Brahmachari Sharan, director of Dharmic Life and Hindu Spiritual Advisor for Campus Ministry. I came to this university for some, you know, Georgetown University grounding itself in its Jesuit tradition 
means it meant to me at that time well here is a university that perhaps understands um, religious identity um, but when I got here I, I, I was also made aware of at least when it comes to the traditions that I, 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 uh, I supposedly know um, I became aware of the fact that a lot of the knowledge was more directed towards the traditions that the university itself knew well. And then that made, uh, you know, the, uh, the traditions that are considered outlier or minor, um, those were subjected therefore to the, uh, the categories, to the assumptions, presumptions, and downright myths that uh, were contained uh, in majoritarian kind of narratives. Even at Georgetown, a place that does have a Jesuit identity, there are classrooms in which religious identities will be made to feel uh, will be made to feel belittled, and there are classes in which they will be uplifted. I would say it's a benchmark from which we can grow. That's going to be one of the main themes of this episode finding ways to grow. This is serious business, and in fact, often the problems begin when these issues are approached casually, by making jokes or without forethought. Here's Imam Yahya Hendi, director for Muslim Life. My friends, for me, if I were to put, classify the things I have heard, much of it has or is done in, in, in forms of jokes, you know, where the professor jokes about a specific culture a specific tradition, a specific practice within Islam, making jokes about hijab and the head cover, making jokes about how, how Arabs eat, how Pakistanis eat, how Muslims eat. So jokes is one thing that have put so many of my Muslim students to come to my office. Rachel and I have uh, couches, we call them the crying couches where students come and cry. And here's Rabbi Gartner again. The thing that I would caution against is, and it comes up repeatedly as most problematic, are casual references to things that are not at all casual for the Jewish students in the room. For example, Hitler. Don't use Hitler as, as the bad guy for everything. Nazi. Don't do it. Just, I was at a recently at a, at a conference that they said, what would you like to never happen again? And, I, and that was my number one in the classroom, because once you say that, the Jewish students either are thinking of their grandparent or their great-grandparent, or they're gone. They're gone. It's not casual. When references are made casually, it, it suggests that the professor doesn't understand the impact that it has on the student. And then not only is it a wound, they can't learn, right? You become less effective in the classroom. One of the ways that carelessness can show up in the classroom is in the use of stereotypes. Imam Handy again. They assume that there is a specific dress code for Muslims. There's no dress code for, for Muslims. You know, Muslims are like everyone else. We dress in every way possible. Statements that I hear all the time being said, uh, Arabs are very rough people. Imagine in a course in, on chemistry and biology, and Arabs are referred to as tough people because someone is talking about some kind of equation. It, these people, the people, you know, like in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in the problem of God course where 
where somebody's talking about God, but when it comes to Muslims, you know, Muslims speak, uh, worship Allah. Well, Allah for us is the Arabic name for God. It's not a different God. <laughs> so you can also, when you refer to Muslims, say Muslims and God. So because we do believe in God. Positive stereotypes get tossed around sometimes of Jews as jokes. Also painful. That was Rabbi Gartner. And here's David Ebenbach, professor of the practice at Georgetown University and project manager at Candles. David facilitated the workshop we're drawing on for this episode. Here's the thing, folks. We all have biases. Every single human on the earth has biases. We're built that way, biologically. We have to make fast decisions. We do a lot of unconscious processing. So it's not a matter of who has them and who doesn't. In fact, studies show that if you're someone who believes you don't have biases, you're more likely to behave in a biased way than someone who acknowledges that they have them. So what are your biases? And let's get those out in the open and think about how to get ahead of them. One way bias shows up is in assumptions you might be making about which students in the room have a personal connection to the material or what the nature of that connection might be. Imam Hendi. I have heard jokes about names and about how they sound. And, uh, oh, you sound a Muslim. or you don't sound like a Muslim. You don't look like a Muslim. You don't look Jewish or you do look Jewish or you sound, oh, is that a Jewish name? Jewish students in the classroom have often said things to me where they may be called upon because their their name is, you know, sounds Jewish or they quote look Jewish, which is absurd to say because Jews come from all over the world. Since Jews come from everywhere, when you're asking one person that you think is a Jewish person, or let's say you're asking somebody who you think is a Muslim, um, can you represent an entire group? You're probably also missing someone else in the room who may be from that same group um, who you haven't stereotyped as being likely to be from that group. That was David Ebenbach again. Even if you've correctly identified a person as being connected to a tradition, singling them out can cause problems. So this is something that I deal with at Georgetown University where professors make jokes about hijab or ask a Muslim woman, why do you wear that? Not to understand and learn and grow his or her understanding, but rather questioning their behavior and why do they wear that, that, that thing on your head, that thing on your head. Director of Dharmic Life Brahmachari Sharan talked about the way that this singling out produces pressure. We feel an inordinate pressure to have to represent our entire, you know, if we have a small portion of an identity in this way, we feel a pressure to represent the entirety of it. And that's an unfair pressure. We don't ask, uh, you know, professors of politics to, um, just because they're an, an academic, to be able to tell us the entirety of, uh, you know, the discipline of neuroscience. We're not going to do that to them. Um, so I don't see why people should have that kind of expectation of us as well. Rabbi Gartner hears from the students she talks to that situations like this leave students in a bind. They don't know what to say in those moments. Either they, they feel this incredible pressure, either if I'm going to fail because I'm not going to say, say it well enough or smart enough, or I really want to speak and I want to do justice to my community, but I might not. Or I'm really resentful, uh, I'm resentful that I'm put on the spot. So as teachers, just to take in mind, again, I think it's messy. You may want to defer to people who you think might have something to add, but to remember that that is a very pressure-filled 
experience for the for the person you may be asking to speak. A lion's share of students come up and say to me afterwards, sometimes crying, that they have been the ones who have been singled out whenever the you know there is a nonsense about caste or there is a nonsense about um, uh, you know idolatry or polytheism. By the way, all three of those are nonsense misnomers. When they get that in the classroom and their teacher takes their focus and puts their eyes straight on that student, everyone else's eyes go straight to that student. That student wants to wants the earth to open up and swallow them whole. Uh, that's what I've had from students. Thank you, my wonderful brother, Brahmachari, for you use the term I was going to use. I didn't, you know, it's in Arabic we say that the earth would open up and it will swallow him or her. It's, you know, something I have heard from my Arab students so many times. If you have a class that is discussing what's happening in the Middle East to single out specific Muslim student or a specific Arab student, the Arab could be Christian, could be Jewish, could be Muslim, could be a practice, not a practicing Muslim, but to be singled out to speak for what is happening in Syria or uh, 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 their homeland or Lebanon, their homeland or whatever it is, has happened a lot and we end up having to deal with it. Uh, because that student does not speak for his or her country. Many of them are American born and have no clue of what's happening back home. And even if they do, uh, to single them out and put pressure on them in front of their fellow students, that's not helpful. Of course, the categories we use to sort our students into traditions are often themselves part of the problem. I get asked all the time and sometimes cornered and I, need, I needed to answer, Imam, are you Shia or Sunni? And I say, I'm just a Muslim. No, 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 I need to know. No, no, I, that's how I identify. No, no, Imam, you have to identify yourself as Shia or Sunni. And the number of Muslim students who come to my office cornered by their professors and sometimes their colleagues and sometimes staff at Georgetown University who want to know, are they Shia or Sunni? Well, many, the majority of Muslims don't identify, identify themselves in such a way. Actually, we started, the term is thrown at us and has been by the media and since uh, the last uh, war in Iraq. Before that, Muslims did not say, I'm Shia, I'm Sunni. Muslims identified themselves as Muslims. So now we are forced to take a stand. We are forced to become a part of a sect or to start an argument about it. We're trying to work against the the taxonom uh, taxonomy that was um, set out in the imperialist times where eugenics and nonsense was uh, used to put people that they couldn't understand into boxes. Unfortunately, we're inheritors of those boxes. Unfortunately, we're inheritors of knowledge systems that tell us to understand people based on those boxes. There are some people who have been given the tools and technologies to talk about themselves and their identities and all of that stuff. And there are some people for whom those tools and technologies were ripped away from them. If you want to know more about your students, including their connections to religious and spiritual traditions, sorting them into categories can harm more than help. Consider asking them how they identify in an open way. I'm a great fan of the open-ended. Uh, the open-ended questions allows for self-determination. Uh, we have to go one step beyond as educators and as people involved in education because we recognize that systems of imbalance were built into the educational systems and frameworks that we follow. Um, and that 
a lot of the categorizations that have that even we have been accustomed and acclimatized to um, are based off such heinous practices such as eugenics and the rest that were used to um, basically catalog the imperialists' new pets. In a survey, you could ask students if it feels appropriate and relevant. How would you describe your religious, spiritual, non-religious, and or non-spiritual identity? Or you could unearth these identities in conversation. I've heard where people, you know, made intentional time to sit with each member of their classroom and say, you know, what would you call yourself in this way? Could you identify your spiritual practice? Can you identify your spiritual practice? Student response, I don't know what a spiritual practice is. Then that teacher stood there and, you know, took a very gentle way through uh, talking through that student, through maybe their family's history, their journeys in this place. Does those symbols around those places, does this language strike familiar with you? And if it did, um, is there a way to encapsulate it that feels like a word you may have heard before that was a self-referential term um, that your family had used? The disciplines we're teaching in have biases too. Brahmachari Sharan, who talked earlier about the roots of false categories in disciplinary failures, has heard from many students who've had painful encounters with those biases. The one thing that our lot suffers from the most is the untested, unupdated assumptions from the 1800s and the 1900s. Every other discipline is undergoing critical reevaluation of the pedagogical models, critical reevaluation of sources and the content of those sources as applicable to the subjects being studied. But in the case of the Dharmic traditions, they are happy to go along with what was said in the 1900s, and they're also happy to go along with current politicians and what the politicians say that these traditions are supposed to represent. That's not what the traditions are. And when students in the classroom hear um, things that were peddled by politicians or regurgitated from missionaries, it just puts them in a place where they want to either be swallowed, uh, hold by the earth, reject anything to do with their identity, or just switch off altogether. So that's where my lot, I think, have had their greatest challenges in the classroom. And that's a perception we make as learned people, quote unquote, learned people, people who have been in the academy, people who are pursuing graduate degrees, people who have postgraduate degrees. What we are doing is each time we get one of those degrees, we've engaged ourselves in years of culturization. And um, uh, basically, we are, whilst interrogating the subject matters that we have, we are unaware about the legacies of the frameworks that we're still using. Um, and unless we are intentionally interrogating each of those things each time, we're going to hit boundaries when it comes to being inclusive people. These oversights can easily happen in academia, where instructors may unknowingly pass along not only incorrect but hurtful information as fact. Georgetown is about to celebrate um, Holy, the Festival of Spring. And uh, Festival of Spring celebrated by throwing around colors and showing the fact that actually the uh, differences that uh, we use uh, to, 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 to diminish people, uh, such as uh, color of skin, size, etc., uh, etc., et all those, uh, you know, really, really um, 
unfortunate ways that humans can behave to one another. All of those are simple misunderstandings that we have and um, resulting from social constructs that really have no place being there. So by throwing colors on one another, you kind of get rid of those, at least very visually for one moment in time. And you remember that for the rest of the year. So when my uh, when some students who have, um, you know, South Asian backgrounds were in a classroom, imagine how um, devastated they were to hear that the reason that they said uh, they celebrate holy is because this is a time when Indians had orgies in the streets. And that was being taught to them by a professor of that particular tradition. Um, whose expertise was that particular tradition who didn't obviously come from the tradition itself. How do we make sure we do better? So far, we've heard some of the frustrating moments our clergy have experienced. In the next part of the episode, they share their insights on where to go from here. Here's David Ebenbach again. First of all, you have to acknowledge what you don't know. It's really hard. You go into the classroom and especially when you're just getting started, you're terrified that you're going to be caught out for not knowing something, uh, but you don't know everything and you're way better off with your students acknowledging what you don't know, as opposed to rushing to answer something in a way that where you really don't know what you're talking about along the way you characterize holy or the way you characterize Muslims in the hijab or the way that you talk about Israel-Palestine. Um, what do you not know? Let's acknowledge those gaps with ourselves and with our students. Also, slow down. This is related to the what do you not know. When someone asks you a question, you do not have to have an answer right away. I can't tell you how much I've respected teachers I've had who've said, that's a really good question. Let me think about what I can say to that and what I can't. Give me a sec here. And they sit back and they think, and then they say, okay, well, here's one thing I do know. Um, here's some things I don't know. But they didn't rush in to seem smart. What they did instead was they, they were wise. I know that when I was starting out in teaching and, and still times that that can be such a hard moment, right? But like how impressed, I'm sure you all have had this experience, how impressed you are with the professor who says, hmm, let me think about that. I don't know. And to, to sub in trying to be smart, to sub in being wise, David, I love the way you put that for being smart, for looking smart can be so so valuable in this space where everything is so tender, especially valuable always. If there are experts at hand, seek them out. We are not far away. We are just a building away from you. So we welcome you to come to our offices, to invite us, to invite you out for coffee or tea or lunch or, tea or something like that, to talk about your own experience and how we can be a part of it. This will also probably involve some self-education. I'm going to basically ask really that we educate ourselves on the contours of anti-Semitism and realize how they're different than the way other prejudices and oppressions work and the contours they share and how, they, how it operates very, very differently. And just to have an awareness of that will make a world of difference, a world of difference. Sometimes the experts are the students themselves when it comes to their own names, for example. The most simple, but it's important for students, uh, butchering names. You know, if, if you don't 
don't uh, know how to say a specific name. Yahya, 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 Yahya. Okay, just ask the students, you know, how would you like me to say your name? Would you like me to refer you by your last name or your first name? And if it's the first name, how can I say it right and learn from it and be ready to change and educate yourself on how to say it? It's worth it for your sake as, as an instructor or staff or professor and the sake of the student and the kind of relationship we want to build with our, with our students. To build that relationship, the crucial thing, of course, is being willing to grow. Things are going to go wrong. Uh, all you have to do is be the person who corrects them when they happen. Um, you know, try and get ahead of some things, but you're going to mess up and you're going to want to um, own up to that with students and then get it right. The way I deal with it is um, sometimes counter it immediately in a diplomatic, smart, intelligent way where it allows space to grow for me and for them to grow a, a moment for them to learn and possibly uh, shift their attitude and how they think when the professor is responsive in the moment and then models learning their own learning in the in the classroom which is in priceless right now right we all know how priceless it is to model that we can transform and we can we can move <laughs> and we can listen. Um, then it has been positive. And when the professor's blown it off afterwards, it, you know, that's where it, it just salts the wound. I, a few years ago, I, um, I was approached by a Muslim student who uh, felt that the professor was really targeting him as a person, but also not very understanding of the tradition of Islam because of some references he made. and some articulations. Hendy counseled the student to address the issue with the professor. The professor emailed me and he said, I heard that she would be happy to come to, to the class and speak. The professor himself came to my office three times, ready to learn, ready to listen, and ready to change. I gave him even a book that he decided to read before he brought me to the classroom. And it was an amazing discussion at the classroom. This, the student decided to stay in the class. It was, as he said, one of the best classes he has ever taken. I will give the professor, he was really, I mean, he was, this guy really had no clue of, of anything else and, and what needs to be done. But his willingness to learn, to listen, to engage also helped him grow. A year later, he came to me, said, Imam Hindi, you don't know what you did and what the student did to me. I am a different person as an academic because of that experience. But of course we don't need to wait for the problems to come up. Within the classroom, you can set yourself up for success by setting up class guidelines for conversations. It's really tough when something comes up and you're like, is that big enough for me to address? Wait a minute, I don't know. It's kind of, I wasn't expecting it. If you have guidelines for how you're supposed to talk to each other, you can get ahead of problems. When you have those guidelines, when a microaggression comes up, you can refer back to those guidelines say, and values. You can say, remember, we want to be the class that treats everybody with openness, curiosity, respect, enthusiasm. We're rooting for each other. So we had a moment there um, that, uh, you know, we did a thing that I know we've talked about um, where somebody singled somebody out. We don't have any reason to believe that person X knows more about this than somebody else. So why don't we toss that question out to the whole group instead and see if anybody knows. This doesn't have to be a moment of disconnection. 
instead of calling people out, it could be helpful to call people in. Instead of like, that's, I mean, of course, sometimes things go very far and maybe you have to be a little more extreme. But in most cases, you don't have to say, that's unacceptable, you're no longer a member of this class, get out of here. Um, but instead, hey, you and everybody else, we all remember that there are some things that we've agreed to as a group about how we wanna be with each other. So let's do that, let's do that together. Let's um, honor our principles. Having a religiously and spiritually diverse class is of course good news. Diversity opens up and deepens the learning experience for everyone. But as we've heard today, we have to approach religion and spirituality with seriousness and sensitivity. We have to think about our own biases and the biases of the disciplines we're carrying into the classroom. We need to avoid making assumptions about our students and we shouldn't put them on the spot to represent their entire identity. Above all, it's important to admit what we don't know seek expertise and guidance, and be ready to grow. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of What We're Learning About Learning. This episode was made possible by many people at Candles, including Molly Chihak, Eddie Maloney, Megan Modafferi, David Ebenbach, Sophie Grabiak, Ellery Syverson, and Stephanie Che. And a big thanks to Rabbi Gartner, Imam Hendy, Brahmachari Sharan, and David Ebenbach for sharing their insights with us. Thanks also to Milo Stout for creating groundbreaking music for the podcast. For more information about our podcast series and our guests, check out our show notes, where you'll find links to previous episodes, information about how to share your thoughts and ideas with us, our website and blog, and other resources. Again, I'm Joe King. And I'm Kim Heisman-Lebreski. Thanks for listening.